We're going to be looking at John chapter 9. And one of the things that uh, is, I love about and yet is, can be difficult about studying books of the Bible, and I mentioned this before, is that when you go through a book of the Bible, if you skip something, everyone knows it, right? If you jump over and they're like, we're in, we were in chapter 8 this week, now we're in chapter 10. What happened to chapter 9, Bob? You can't skip stuff, right? Because, and so you have to deal with the difficult stuff. And today, we're going to deal with some difficult stuff. This is a very difficult passage, and it deals with difficult things. And so I want you to understand that as we go into this. I do this for a reason, studying books. I do it for a reason, because it, it forces us to go through the whole counsel of God. Too many times, it's easy, and, and I mean, I can struggle with this too, so I'm not blaming all pastors, but it can very, be very easy to preach the sermons that you like about the stuff you like. And, and, and it just can sound so good. How to be your best you. Who doesn't want to be their best me, right? Who doesn't want to be their best? And so that sounds really good. But the problem is, that's not real life, and that's not the Bible. It's not the whole counsel of God. And so we're going to look at some, a difficult issue here. Let me review. In chapter 7, uh, one of the things we looked at, Jesus came out in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, well, at the very end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, and he said, I am bringing living water. I have this living water for you. There's a whole new way of living. It's not, you know, and he talked about bios and zoe. It's not just existing. That's bios, just eating and drinking and living. Zoe is life that has purpose and meaning and is fulfilling. And he says, I bring eternal zoe. He puts that modifier so they understand. This is an incredibly powerful thing he's talking about. And he says, I have the living water for the thirsty soul. And then we saw this this interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees and this woman caught in in adultery. And we saw that Jesus brings grace for a broken heart. He has water for a thirsty soul, and he brings grace for a broken heart. And now we're going to see, he's going to reiterate. He said this earlier in chapter 8, and he's going to say it again in chapter 9. I'm the light of the world. He brings spiritual sight to people who are blind. He brings life. He brings sight. He brings grace. He quenches thirst. I also want to remind you, we talked about this, is that miracles, what's the point of miracles? Miracles are signs. They point to something. They paint a picture of truth so that people can understand a spiritual principle. Then and now. And so this is one of the things we're going to see here in this passage. And finally, These are difficult issues, and I want to tread carefully here. They're serious concerns. We have people here now who are going through incredibly difficult situations. We have people here who have been through incredibly difficult situations, tragedies. And some have scars that are still healing. And I want to be sensitive to that. And I don't want to be simplistic. It's too easy. It happens too much that people give simplistic answers to things that are difficult and require a more nuanced answer. Because simplistic is not generally how things work. There's always more to it than we see. How many times? I remember one time talking to a guy, and I was just describing something that a person was going through. And he says, oh, well, that's easy. Just tell him to do this. 
And I wanted to slap him so bad because it was just such a simplistic answer to an incredibly difficult thing that was racking a person, just, just giving them such difficulty. And I'll oh, just tell them to do this. That's not how it is. But the Word of God has help for this in incredibly difficult times. So first, I just want you to say, I just titled this, Why? Why? In John chapter 9, we'll see that. Just to set the scene, all right? As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, right? As Jesus is walking, there is a man. He's probably sitting. He's a beggar, and he's blind from birth. So set that scene. Let's think about that for a moment. Remember, remember, as you read the Bible, such an important thing to do is try to put yourself in people's shoes or sandals, right? Here's a man. He's blind from birth. Let's think about that. What does that mean? He has never seen his mom or his dad or his brothers or his sisters or his uncles or his aunts. He's never seen them. He's never seen a sunrise. He's never seen a sunset. He's never seen beautiful scenery. He would be uneducated. He can't learn in the synagogue. He could not work at anything. So he has to beg. That's the only way for him to contribute to the family and to his well-being, to his, his livelihood. He has to beg. No one wants to beg. No one grows up saying, man, when I get old enough, I can't wait to be a beggar. No one. It's demeaning. It's difficult. He could not get married or have children. People believed that he was cursed. They believed that. He was lonely. He was outcast. He was rejected. Think of him. He's sitting on the side of the road doing the only thing in this world that he can do, and it's begging. Put yourself in those shoes. I mean, we can't. I mean, how can we imagine what it's like? But to try to do that is a good thing to do because we sense the hopelessness, the despair in the soul of this man. And so we come to a very difficult question. In verse 2, the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, think about this right off. The first thing is, they ask right in front of the man. You think about that. And, th- and, this, and this wouldn't be unusual because it is widely assumed that it's got to be one of these two reasons that he's blind. This is true. You ever, get, you ever meet somebody who walks around and bludgeons people over the head with their words and says, it's only the truth. I'm just telling the truth. Right? Just drives you crazy. It keeps saying, you forgot the truth in love part. And so they say this. And just an aside, what this man is feeling right now, some of you have felt, apart from these other things I mentioned, they're saying hurtful things in front of him because they think it's okay to say those things. You know, some of you have been through difficult issues, sickness and disability and tragedy, and oftentimes you run into people who do not help with what they say. It can often be cruel. It can be unthinkingly hurtful. 
And that's what the disciples are doing here. They're not thinking about the man. And this is really key for us. They're not thinking about him. They're asking a theological question. But it doesn't even make them stop and think, what about this poor man? They don't care about him. They're oblivious. When we get oblivious to people who are hurting, we're in such a dangerous place. So, they're just casually talking about his life. Let's think about what they ask. This is an age-old question. Why? Why? Why is there suffering? It deals with this problem that man has struggled with, the problem of pain. And this is, this is something that's, that's, that's so deep. We're going to scratch the surface some here, but we're, we're not going to plumb the depths because it's just too much. But people ask this now. People say, hey, if God is uh, good, why does he allow suffering? That's a legitimate question. People say, if God is so powerful, why won't he stop it? And the disciples think, well, there's only two options. But they're wrong. The first option, let me just show you. The first option they think is, I I call it outward blame. You, You look outward, right? Somebody out there is responsible In this case, they say, oh, it's the parents. They must be responsible. It kind of goes like this. I am suffering. There has to be someone to blame. There has to be someone to be angry at. There has to be someone to sue. Right? And so I point at that person. Now, this is is where nuance has to come in because this can be taken in an overly simplistic way. Look, I know parents can affect their children. I know that. I know that the older I get, the more I see the things that I did wrong. I become more aware of them. So I understand that parents can affect the children. But what they're saying here is, they're saying, God, it looks like, did the parents sin? And you took that sin and said, I got to bonk somebody for that. So I'm going to smash this, their son. I'm going to curse him with blindness as payment for this sin. He's paying it off in a sense. And that outward goes all over the place because many times people point the blame at God. They say, I'm trying so hard and I'm suffering. These people are not trying and they seem to be doing great. Why, God? Sometimes people blame a group. I don't have things or I don't have this or I can't do this and they can. And I, because of who they are, I don't like them. I hate them. I blame them. So that's outward. The, the other option is inward blame. They say, well, then is it his fault? Or people say, it's my fault. And sometimes it can be true. I mean, we've all been in situations, probably, where we've done something wrong, and the consequences are incredibly painful, and it's our fault. We did something wrong. But what they're saying here is, they're saying, God, is almost like God did this man. You knew he was going to be a sinner, so you are punishing him from the get-go because of it. And these uh, two things, blaming outward, blaming inward, is too simplistic. And Jesus is going to reject it. But I want to say something else, because both can be combined sometimes in a very deadly way. Like if a child 
is abused by a parent. And the child is thinking, I hate my parent for doing this. But it must have also been my fault. We see this a lot in counseling. We see this a lot in dealing with people who have been through these types of things. They hate the person, but they blame themselves also. And when you get that combination, it's lethal in a person's life. And we have to be careful in church. We have to be careful as believers in Jesus Christ because sometimes people who are not suffering, sometimes people who are living successfully, in a sense, can be incredibly hurtful to those who are suffering. Sometimes people, successful people, they love to tell you that if you just did this, whatever this is, generally it's something that they're able to do and they're good at. If you would just do that, you wouldn't have this. You'd be happy just like me. And these, I want to be, and take this with a grain of salt, these are the people that write books, right? These are the people that tell you how to clean your house. Here's 10 ways to make sure you have this spotless house. And what it is, is these are people who are naturally inclined to do that. They're good at it. It's an area they're gifted in. And so they think, if you just do what I do, your house will be clean too. And I'm telling you, that doesn't work. I don't know how, how, how my socks fall in the places that they fall. But as much as I try to follow steps, it doesn't work. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've tried to clean my office. When I went away on vacation, Jose emptied my office, painted it, and cleaned it. That was about a month and a half ago. It's this is a pile of stuff. I don't know how that happens. My wife walks in and goes, why are these things in your office? I don't know. I don't know where to put them. And somehow, under the desk seems like a perfect idea to me. You know, and it's just, here's the thing. Successful people will just say, if you will just do this, whatever they're successful at, if you would just do this, you would be successful just like me. And this is a problem. Because they'll say, are you sick? It's a lack of faith. It's your fault. Are you poor? You don't work hard enough. And they, and they judge you, and they put the blame on you. And what happens is people begin to believe that. They say, I'm not blind. I'm not homeless. I'm a functioning member of society, so I must be in some way morally superior. And you, blind beggar, are on the margins of society. And, and, and it's obvious that the story of Job comes to mind in this, right? Job is suffering terribly. And he keeps saying, it's not because I sinned. It's not a sin that I did. If I could just talk to God, if we could set up a courtroom and I could prosecute, God would lose his case on me, right? And his three friends come along, right? Uh, his three friends... Uh, you ever use uh, those um, like memory tricks that um, help you remember things? Like elephant built a go kart, Elphaz uh, Bildad, and Zophar. Those are his three friends. 
And that's how I remember, because one time when I was studying it, I just remembered elephant builds a go-kart. All right? So his three friends, I don't know why I brought that up. His three friends come along, and, uh, and they say, Job, you have sinned. Admit it. And he goes, no, I didn't. They go, well, look, we are not being punished So obviously, you did something that we haven't done. What did you do? It's on you, right? And so God shows up, and first he goes to Job, and he just says, look, let's just talk about this grand plan that is running the universe. Let's just talk about that for a minute. And God just talks about this incredible plan that's running for the universe, and he's basically saying, Job, you don't have the resources to make a judgment on this. And Job goes, you're right. I don't. I withdraw my complaint. You know, because Job never stopped believing in God. He didn't turn his back on God. He even said, though he slay me, yet I will serve him. But he just said, I think this is wrong here. And God shows him the whole plan. And Job goes, okay, okay, okay. And then God goes to his three friends. And he says, basically, I, I should kill you for this. But Job says no, you know, I think it's part of, part of God teaching them a lesson. But he tells them, you were judgmental and condemning, and you were wrong. You were wrong. So God rebukes his friends, their superiority, their judgmentalism. So as we look at this real quick, what could be going on with suffering? What could be going on with suffering in your life? Let's think about that for a moment. First of all, there could be a particular sin that you've done that is you are reaping what you've sown, that, but, but Jesus rules that out here very clearly. There could be. I mean, it can be that there's, there, there is stuff that parents have done to you and caused you to have difficulties and problems, have caused you to endure some suffering, but, but he rules that out. He rules that out. There also is this whole idea, the Bible talks about this quite a bit, that we live in a fallen world and things are broken. This is not the way God designed the world to be. There's this general idea of sin that affects this world. It was not the plan in the beginning. In the beginning, our sinfulness introduces decay and death and disaster and cancer and human evil and natural evil. There is sin in this world. It is a broken world. And so there are consequences to that. And so it it could be something's going on in your life. It's not because of a sin. It's a result of living in a world that's broken and that is sinful. It could be this does happen. It could be demonic. There are evil beings in this world. It could be, finally, we don't know. It's just mysterious, and we don't know. We ask why, and we just don't know. But they're sure of this. They're sure of it's the first two. They're sure this man sinned or his parents sinned. That's what's causing this. So they ask Jesus, which is it? Now, now when you think about it, there's this man. He's sitting there. He's blind. He's begging, and they ask, which is it, God? Like, what does that matter to them? They're just wondering. See, this shows you that they really have no concern for this person. 
Because it doesn't matter. He's blind. It doesn't matter. But they want to know. So it's a difficult question that we have to deal with, but there's a surprising answer here. Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He says, it's neither of those. You're being too simplistic. It's, it's kind of like saying, oh, it's karma, right? He was a bad person or he had a bad family. But here's the problem when you begin to think that way. You begin to, be, you begin to become less sympathetic to people. Yes, karma. They, they must deserve it. And then you're less empathetic, you're less sympathetic, you're less inclined to help someone like that. In fact, in some Eastern, in some Eastern religions, the whole point is, if that person is suffering to make, to, because of sins, to get rid of sins, for you to help them would be to prolong the suffering. Just let them suffer. It'll, be, it'll end sooner. So what does that do? It makes them not care about people. You know, there's other simplistic ways that people can address this kind of thing maybe like a relativistic approach, who's to say what's right and wrong? Morality is a construct. We just make it up. To look to something like the Ten Commandments is antiquated. Believing that we're hardwired to believe in a right and wrong given by God is ludicrous and it's oppressive. Don't tell me what's right. Don't tell me what's wrong. I decide what's right and wrong. But you know what? No one lives that way. No one lives. Yes, we can just figure out what we each think is right and wrong. No, we don't. We don't live that way. And so Jesus gives the answer here that they had not even thought of. And he challenges their presuppositions. This is what I mean. He takes a look at the unstated premise that is a part of their question. Jesus does this all the time. You you notice how so many times... People ask Jesus a question, and his answer goes in a way that you're like, oh, I didn't expect that. Why? Because many times what Jesus is doing is he's reaching back into the the premise that the question is built on, and he's addressing that premise. And here he's, he's doing it here. When we ask, why does God allow suffering? Oftentimes, I'm not going to say all the time because that would be too simplistic. Oftentimes, the unstated premise is this. I do not deserve this, right? Why is this happening to me? The premise is, I don't deserve it. And oftentimes, a part of that premise is this. I deserve a comfortable life. This is not comfortable. Why? Why? So that's the premise that's behind this. And that's something we need to think about. That's something I need to think about. I try to think about it at times when I'm praying, at times when I'm talking about things, when, I, when I'm thinking about this or that or the other. Is there a premise that I'm starting with that maybe is a false premise to begin with? Because if you think about it, here is this good God who created you, who sustains you in every second of every day, all the time. The moment he stops doing that, It's over. And so, because he is God, the only sane thing to do is to worship and obey him. Coincidentally, that is where we find our greatest joy. So it's not a duty, it's a joy. But people resent his interference. They reject his authority. They've decided they know better. So, see, they have decided they know better. We decided we knew better. 
we decided not to obey. We give him no honor. But they, or we, would like him to follow along after us and make sure we're comfortable. That is the unspoken premise when we say, why is this happening? I don't deserve it. You know, God doesn't condemn Job for asking why. He just shows him there's way more involved than he realized. And I would never condemn a person for asking why. It's natural. Just understand what's behind it. And so Jesus is going to answer this in a very nuanced way in the second part of verse 3 here. He says, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, interestingly, uh, theologians talk about this, especially the, the, the Greek here. It seems to be that what he's saying is, but this happened. Okay, we're looking at this man. He's born blind. Whose fault is it? His parents. Neither. It's neither person's fault. This happened. And God, and the result is God is going to demonstrate his works through him. God's going to do something incredible through this man. This is not my plan, God says. It's not, it's not what I am create, causing and creating. I don't create evil. But this, this is not what I had for you. But sin is in the world, and it's wreaking havoc. But, but, sin will not win. I will, God is saying. This is not for punishment, but I will turn evil into good. Watch me. The disciples were not thinking of helping this guy. They just wanted to discuss the reason for his affliction. Jesus says, I'm here to help him. I'm going to get dirty and get down and help this man. It's easy to not get involved. It's easy to debate reasons for things. It's easy to feel superior and stand apart. And Jesus is saying here, this is, there's a plan here. You may not see it, but if you're able to help, help. You don't have to know all the reasons. Just help people. You know, I think about this in the plan of God. Jesus knew, Jesus knew that thousands of years later, people would be reading this story, listening to this story, and their lives would be changed because of this man. Jesus said, look, it's not his parents, it's not him, this just happened. And as a result of that, I am going to bring good out of evil. Watch me, watch me. 2,000 years later, he's saying to you and me, watch me. I'm going to bring good out of evil. Your suffering is never senseless. It's never useless. See, this is such a nuanced view. It's not simplistic. Do not think, he's saying, that your acts of kindness go unnoticed. Your actions of love to others. Go, on, go unnoticed. Scripture tells us that even the angels see these things and are amazed. Paul talks about how even angels are watching as God's people live in a way that honors him. 
So God is teaching us that, sin, that, that suffering is never senseless. He creates good out of evil. And this leads into, it's the obvious thing, it leads into the story of, of Joseph. We see this writ large in a man's life. What happens? His, you know, and you know the story, but let me just rehearse a few parts of it. He's, this man, his brothers hate him. And they have some reasons. He can be a bit of a pill, right? But his brothers hate him. But they hate him so much they want to kill him. And one brother, Reuben, says, no, no, no. We cannot shed blood. He's our brother. He's our brother. So Reuben says, throw him in a hole. That'll teach him a lesson. And Reuben, Reuben's thinking, and once they walk away, I'm gonna let, I'm, once they go away, I'm going to let him out, right? So what happens? They throw him in the hole, and Judah suddenly says, let's sell him. We'll sell him to slavers. And they sell him into slavery, and he's taken to Egypt. And yeah, the story, he goes, he's, he rises to prominence in the house of a very powerful man. And then that man's wife accuses him and he gets in trouble. So he goes thrown in prison and he gets in prison and he spends years and years in prison. And finally he gets let out and Pharaoh begins to see how talented he is. And he rises to the top to where even at one point in Genesis, it says, you are equal to Pharaoh. That's how powerful you are. You're equal to Pharaoh. And then his brothers come back because there's a famine in the land. He's helped prepare for the famine. You know that story. But there's an interesting part of this is this, is that when finally he frames, to see where his brothers are at, he frames Benjamin. And Jacob steps up and says, you can't do this. You can't do this to my dad. He lost, he lost one son. He can't lose this one. Take me. Jacob, the one who said, let's sell him into slavery, suddenly steps up and says, take me. And and it says right then, Joseph breaks down and starts crying. Why? Because he knows they've changed. He knows Jacob has changed. He saw it with his own eyes, and he starts crying. And then, you know, the very end of the story, they're there for a long time, and then their father dies, and the brothers all go, he's been waiting for this. Once dad goes, he's going to kill us. And Joseph tells them no. And why would they think that? Why would they think that? It's because in the Middle East, back then, even in some parts today, there is a tradition that even if your enemy comes and needs help, and you, you, you have to give your enemy help for a period of time, and then when that period of time is up, you can kill him. Right? So you, get, you feed them, you know, you, you, you help them get maybe wounds, whatever. And then when the period is t- of time, whatever length of time it is, different cultures have different times. When that period of time is over, you can kill him. And they're thinking, oh, our dad is the period of time. We're goners. Right? And so what does Joseph say? He says to him, you meant it for good, for evil. I just about blew the whole point, right? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And Joseph is basically saying, it was worth it. The suffering was worth it. Look at all the people I have saved because of the suffering I went through. You hated me. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God had a plan that was so, so complex I couldn't grasp it. Can you imagine those years that Joseph spent in prison charged with a crime he didn't commit? God, why? Why? And God said, it's a big plan. It's a big plan. Trust me. Trust me on this one. 
This is the hard one. Trust me on it. And he trusts God, and God achieves his goals. His goals were to save people. And he did it through Joseph. So we have this surprising answer. This man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. This just happened for the reason, for the result, that God would redeem him, redeem this. He creates something good. So this difficult question, there's this surprising answer that Jesus gave. And finally, I want you to see the light that we need. As long as it is day, Jesus said, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He says, look, I'm doing the works of him who sent me. That's a phrase that's common. John mentions this a number of times. And, and, and in the, towards the end of John, Jesus says, the work that you sent me for, I finished it. He says, Father, I finished the work that you gave me, that you sent me here for. On the cross, Jesus said what? It is finished. It is finished. And so Jesus is talking about this redemptive work that he's doing. And he says, well, it's day. As long as we can. We've got to do, I've got to do this. And he wants them to help him. He wants them to do it with him. He does. It's the same thing today. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus is saying, I have lost people. I have people that are lost. Will you please help me find them? So he says, here we are. He says, we must do the works of him who sent me because the night is coming. The dark time is coming when no one can work. Everything points to the cross. And now we are told to go and tell the world. This man is going to point to that. Jesus is going to do a miracle that's a sign. It's a picture of something. He's saying, I bring the light. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Light reveals. Light shows reality. I see who I really am. We see who we really are. I am no better than that man. You are no better than that man. We are all beggars. I always think every once in a while we could get a little liturgy going on, right? And I could say, we are beggars, and you could call back to me, we are beggars indeed, right? Every once in a while a little liturgy might be good for us. It is morphing time. We morph indeed. I like that one too. Martin Luther carried a note with him his whole life. He would carry it in his coat pocket. Every once in a while, his acquaintances would see him take it out and read it. Just a few short lines. When he died, it was in the pocket of the coat he was wearing. And the last line of that note said, we are beggars. This is true. We're beggars. This is true. Too many people think I'm a good moral person. I'm earning my way. I'm not a beggar. He owes me a good life. And on the outside of someone who's like that, it can look good sometimes. But a person who's like that, this is the problem. They will always struggle with insecurity. The insecurity, does Jesus really love me? They will always struggle with self-righteousness, and they will always struggle with a lack of joy because that attitude negates it. Let him show you that you are a beggar, and he wants to bring healing in your life. And then as a Christian, 
When we go through suffering, God can redeem it. God can use it as a force for good. He can be, it can become a witness to other people. Suddenly, we are more equipped to comfort those with the comfort that we have been comforted with. We become graceful lovers and not self-righteous judges. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on, on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, there are some guys who are going to read this, and they're going to be like, Jesus spit on the ground. Yes! I knew I was being biblical, right? And there's some wives who are going, no, you, don't you do that. It's disgusting. Jesus did something interesting here. You think about it. Why, why spit? Why clay? He could have just done it, right? But the picture is not complete yet. He's still painting a picture with, with this man, with the life of this man, with the healing of this man. Now, why spit? Why clay? I don't know. I don't know. There's no deep. The Greek doesn't show us anything, right? It's just spit and clay. But then he commands him to go wash, and he says in a very particular place, the pool of Siloam, which is not close by. It's not close to where they're at. And there's a purpose for this. Imagine this man, though. Again, let's get back in his sandals and start to think. He's heard everything that's been said. You've heard everything. This whole conversation that's going on, you've heard it. And you're thinking, oh, wow, that's, oh, right? I thought it was my fault. Or I thought it was my parents' fault. This is, right? He knows it's Jesus. Because later he says the man, this man called Jesus. So he knows it's Jesus. He knows something is up. He feels mud on his face. He hears the words of Jesus, go wash. Where? Pool of Siloam. Oh, man. You know, you're blind, right? It's across town. You know where it is, but still. But the pool of Siloam, it means sent. He was sent for a reason. And now imagine this. You feel right now a thrill of hope. Could this be true? Could this be what I think it is? Emma, is something, you feel this, in, and, you're, and it's almost too good, right? You, you, you get that feeling, it's like, oh, I can't hope for that. That's too much to hope for. I've been disappointed before. Salome, the man told me to walk to Salome. It's a long way to go, but I got to do it. I got to do it. And he joyously gains his sight. The picture of salvation that Jesus has uh, Painted here. I was blind and now I can see. And so Jesus sends him to that pool for a purpose. And we're going to see next week what that purpose is. A little bit of a hook there. So I would encourage you to do this read the rest of John 9 this week. Read it. It's a beautiful, beautiful story, brilliantly written. See the irony, even the humor that's in this story. As you read this story, see the power that the Pharisees had as they threatened to throw him out, 
That phrase is the phrase they use for kicking someone out of the synagogue, which is, is um, so, for society, for someone in their society, it's, it's like suicide almost. It's, 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 a, it's a horrific thing to be, to be cast out. That's probably too strong of a word to you, but it's a horrific thing to be cast out. You, 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 can't go to, you can't go to the temple. You can't go to synagogue. You lose interactions with you. People will shun you. The power the Pharisees had and the fear that that, that power generates to the point to where even parents are willing to throw their kid under the bus because they're so afraid. As you read, look for those things. And finally, I want to say this. If you're struggling, if you're working through, don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. This is a community. We are your brothers and sisters. Reach out to us. Let us know. Call. Talk to me. We can help you with godly counseling. We can help you with mentoring. We can help you in in financial issues and with financial counseling. We can help you. We have people who would love to pray for you. They don't even have to know your name. They just, just the situation, and they will faithfully pray for you day after day after day because this is a community, and we shouldn't go through these things alone. Traversing hard places is best done in community, not in solitude. And the other thing I would say is, just like I feel like Jesus is challenging us here, look for ways to get involved in people's lives. Look for ways to help. Look for ways to serve. Look for ways to get dirty. The the, the disciples they wanted to talk about a theological issue. Jesus says, no, I'm getting dirty. I'm getting down to this man's level. I'm going to deal with this. Now, as a church, we offer things. We have things, we have things coming up. This, this Arizona backpack thing is, an, it, you know, you can help financially so that little Navajo kids get a present and school supplies. Uh, we are involved in angel tree. So the kids whose mom or dad, and some of the kids, a couple of the kids we've served in the past, mom and dad are in prison. And through prison fellowship, this effort to try to salvage families that usually break up and end up in destructive way, just terrible things to kids, there's someone working to make that not happen. And we can be a part of that through Angel Tree. The names will be coming out, by I think, by next week. And you can pick up a name. It'll tell you two presents to buy. Generally, they're $20 or less each. You wrap them, and they go to that kid in the name of his parent. Another way we do is uh, we have port, the outreach to homeless people. Um, the hardest time for port is uh, around Christmas. And we are scheduled for the 20, night of the 26th, the day after Christmas. One of the hardest days they have to get people to uh, serve. And I know a lot of our, our CNU students will be gone, but for the rest of us, can you not think of a better way of celebrating the birth of our Savior than to serve homeless people, to serve them dinner, to make sure they have a good night's sleep, 
and to serve them breakfast the next morning. You don't have to do the whole thing. You sign up for dinner. You sign up for breakfast. You, you can sign up just for the intake where they get them in and register, things like that. But a way of serving people who can never pay you back. They'll never be able to pay you back. And so, and let me just say this. There's tons of other ways to serve. Don't, I, I don't want you to, but here's the deal. Jesus is saying, don't walk by. Get dirty. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that it pushes us, it challenges us. You get in our face sometimes and you shake us. Lord, help us to be shook this morning at the love you had for this man that society threw out and could have cared less for. Even the religious people did not care about this man. But I just thank you, Father. You sent your son not to start a religion, but to create relationships and relationships reach out and serve. Help us to be that kind of a person in our life, not looking past or through people, but seeing them and understanding the ways that we can have an impact on this world. Father, we thank you that you've brought us to this place. You've allowed us to learn from this passage, to learn from this man. Help us to never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen.